0: God bless all of you. It's good to see you all here. For those of you who are joining us online, welcome in the name of the Lord. So we're gathered together here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship to sit at the feet of the Lord and to hear His voice and to see what He has to say to His people and to ask that we would be changed and transformed by Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. I just want to let you know um, that um, my name is Ron Love. I'm an elder here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. It's my joy to be here to proclaim the Word of God to all of you today. Uh, to let you know that uh, to keep Pastor Nathan in prayer, he, um, he hurt his foot somehow, um, and it hasn't, doesn't seem to be healing uh, properly. He's in a lot of pain and um, just can't stand, can't walk. He tried to do it last Sunday. Uh, during his message, and uh, that was not a good experience. So, uh, we pray for healing for for him, immediate healing by the God who heals, and trust him to to perform that work in his life. So, pray with me uh, right now. So, Lord… Thank you so much that you hear the cries of your people. Uh, Right now at this moment, we pray for our pastor, Lord. We ask that you would touch and heal him, that he would be made whole and complete so that he might serve you, God, in that wholeness that only you can bring and that completeness that only your spirit can provide so that he's not dealing with all the things, but he's dealing with what you would have him deal with, uh, especially in the bringing of the word to your people so that we might be changed and transformed by it. Lord, we ask that you would heal him now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Looking forward to seeing that. Uh, This morning, I just want to share with you, um, and I'm going to share with you some things out of the Word, and we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. So uh, if you want to, if you have your Bible with you, your tablet or whatever, uh, you can turn to that now and just be ready for that. But In first Kings uh, in that section what we see are the wonderful moments of victory uh, that God has for his people and they are sweet and they are powerful and they lift up our spirits and they give us uh, say wings to fly as we're walking with the Lord and in Scripture God's given us many many examples for us to draw on. And when we read these accounts, we're left amazed at the power and the faith of these men and women who have gone before us. And one of my favorite accounts in the Old Testament is the account of the prophet Elijah and the battle at Mount Carmel. And that's what we're going to find in those verses in 1 verse King 17 through 19. And it just by way of just experience, you know, my wife and I, Deb, my wife Debbie and I, uh, had the uh, awesome privilege of making the trip to Israel several years ago, and that is one of the one of the stops that was on the the tour that we had going up to Mount Carmel and looking over uh, the valley there, and and just being at that place. I, I think that that was the second best place um, that that we went to. The first being on the actual steps of the temple, right? Uh, because you know that Jesus actually walked there, like those stones know him, right? That's life-changing. But being up on, on the Mount, Mount Carmel, it's kind of the same experience because we kind of look and we say, hey, miraculous things happened here, life-changing things, and the power of God was here, and, you know you just you just are waiting for the earth to to reverberate right with that power and and uh, and as you read the scripture when you're there on the mountain you recount the story it's like so many other places in Israel everything just comes alive because you're there right and it just means so much more uh, to you so if the lord ever gives you that opportunity seize it just just go you know he he holds you in his hand don't worry about anything else right um, but that's, that's the feeling that, that I certainly got when I, when I was there. That's the feeling that I get now when I go back and I reread the account of, of Elijah. The story in 1 Kings, um, that specific story of what happened on Mount Carmel uh, is in chapter 18. We'll be, we'll be going through that as well, uh, but let me just sum up that story for you, right? So at this time in Elijah's uh, ministry as a prophet, uh, he basically comes to this point where he's like, enough is enough. The people need to decide, are they going to serve God or are they going to serve Baal? Right? And so he calls uh, for the prophets of Baal to come to the mountaintop and they're going to have a battle royale. It's like, this is it. We're going to, f- we're g- we have to figure this out now. And so he puts this test to the prophets and himself and what it, is, it entails is building an altar having a sacrifice putting the wood there but they can't light it on fire they have to call to their god and whosoever god causes fire to fall down and consume the sacrifice that is the god who will be followed right and so they go through it and the prophets of of Baal they just they nothing happens of course right that God and on God is silent. But Elijah gets up there, and not only does he have no fire, but he tells him to pour water all over everything, three times. The thing is flooded, drenched, but it doesn't matter. He prays to God and he asks the Lord to show who He is, and the fire falls down. And consumes not only the sacrifice, but the wood, the stone, and the dust, and the water. And there's nothing, nothing left. The Lord is God. That's an awesome story, right? I mean, you see the mighty work of God on display through the prophet Elijah, and I would say that this is definitely what we talk about today when we're talking about a mountaintop experience, right? Mountaintop experience is when everything is just going right and you know that you're there, you and the Lord, and it's just a beautiful time, and, and there's usually victories that have happened and, and just a sweet, sweet time of, of kind of resting in that it is a wonderful time with the Lord, no doubt. And that's what the story would be if you stopped reading right there. It would be that kind of mountaintop experience. But we know better than that, right? Things never stop right there. (laughs) There's always more with the Lord more that he wants to teach you, more that he wants to instruct you in, more that he wants to do so that you are drawn closer to him in, his, in your understanding of him. And so that story continues. God always wants more for us than just the sweet manna. And I believe that he intends more for us as we look beyond the typical view of what we would call a mountaintop experience. In fact, I think in this case, we'll begin to see that Elijah's mountaintop experience actually begins in verse 41, which is after all that great fire from heaven occurrence. And many times after we get the big win with the Lord, right, and we're just, we're just flying high with him, we'll be faced with more, much more on the mountaintop. So much so that being on the mountaintop often actually feels like being in the valley of decision, right? Nevertheless, the victory that is there at that moment and then in what comes after that is the Lord's. And it's as He intends. And it's for His glory and for His purposes. And I believe that's what we can see and will see as we go through the ministry of Elijah and we see what has happened in those chapters 17 through 19. So I'm excited about that, I'm excited to get into that with each and every one of you and those who are joining us online. But before we do that, we have to do the thing that is most important when the body of Christ comes together And that is to get our eyes off ourselves and to put our eyes firmly on Jesus. And one way that we do that is through prayer. Another way that we do that is through worship as the corporate body of Christ. And so I invite you to do both with me now. We're going to pray to the Lord to see what He has for His people and ask that this time would be set set apart and sanctified. And then we're going to come together before the throne of God and lift up His name for He is worthy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that you have given us to be gathered together as a body of Christ. That body of Christ, whether here in the room or worldwide online, it is your body. And this is the time that you have ordained for your body to be in lockstep together to hear your word, to come to lift up our prayers and our petitions to you, and to come and to sit at your feet and raise our hands in praise and worship and adoration to you, the only one who is worthy, to speak your sweet name and of your wondrous, wondrous works, to worship you in song and expression for you alone are holy and you alone are worthy. Lord God, fill us with your spirit as we begin. Get our eyes off of us and let our eyes be firmly on you. Thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome again. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with all of you this morning as we open up the Word of God and we see what He has for us today. And, and as uh, I said in, in the intro, we're going to be going over the passage of Scripture in 1 Kings chapter... 17, 18, and 19, and this section of Scripture deals with the story of the prophet Elijah and, and the work that God uh, did in and through him um, at the beginning and, and middle part of his, of his ministry. And um, What I see in that part, as I said, is really just the description of what we would call a mountaintop experience, but not just the experience that, that we all have in our head about the the beauty and glory and just peace and wonderful sweetness of the time, but the mountaintop experience expanded, right? And so I want to go through and I want to talk about that. The Chapter 18 talks about specifically that episode on Mount Carmel uh, with the prophet Elijah, Um, but I want to take a look at everything that we know about Elijah up until that point, because like we always go back and we get context when we when we read the scripture it's it's just as important to go back and know who you're talking about right and so I want to do that with you and you know there's a ton of information on on Elijah, so I'm just going to say buckle up we're going to try to get through this as quickly as possible you know but um, are you ready? all right, here we go so we find the the history of Elijah in chapter 17. So we find out these things about Elijah. So number one, we find out what his name is. His name is Elijah, and the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God, right? The next thing that we find out about Elijah is that he was a Tishbite, okay? And the next thing that we find out about Elijah is he was uh, was of the settlers of Gilead, okay? And then, and then, um, and then that's it. (laughs) That's all we know about Elijah, right? And I think that that's, um, that's telling. You know, God does that often when you go through and you read about the people in the Bible Right, sometimes he doesn't give you any explanation of who they are, what they did before their calling, you know, who their parents were, you know, their, 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 uh, their lineage, their, their associations with anybody else. He just gets to the point, right, because the things that are important are right there in what he's telling you. So that's actually what happens with Elijah. You get to chapter 17, it gives you those three things, and bam, we're in the story, right? He explodes on the scene almost out of no, nowhere, right? We don't know who his parents are, we don't know his lineage, we don't know the story of his calling, right? And we don't have anything called the early years of Elijah. We just have no idea about the years before, nothing. And why is that, right? As I said, God seems to do that in many cases throughout his word. You know, I, I, think, I can think of, you know, um, uh, uh, Mary, right? We've had, I have had this discussion with my mom recently, right? And so, we do know some things about Mary, but do we know detail about, you know, uh, what her family life was actually like, you know, things like that. We don't. The Scripture doesn't say anything, um, and that happens with others in the Bible. It's like all of a sudden, they just show up, and then they do the work of the Lord, right? And that's the important thing, so it doesn't always happen that we get all this information about people. What we get is the information that God feels is pertinent, and then we take that and are able to apply that to our life. And what I love about that when it happens is that it really gives, I know for me, an opportunity to look at that person's life and say, that's a lot like me, right? It's like I, he, doesn't, he didn't come from a king. He didn't you know, have this grand, you know, uh, calling. At least we don't know about it. But he's serving the Lord. So obviously he was called. He has great faith, and we can see that, and we'll see that when we talk about him. There's a work that God's doing in his life. But very often, everything that came before that moment it doesn't mean anything, not really. And it's like us when we come to Christ. Often everything that was our life before we came to Christ, it doesn't mean anything anymore. We're a new creature in Christ, and so we move forward. And then everything that happens after that is the glorious work of God, right? And so I see that, I see that when we're talking about uh, somebody like Elijah, where I don't get his history I don't have it. I can't go back and study that, you know, and then maybe make some big thing about it or whatever. I just see what he does. I see what he does from the point that God brings him into his word. And so what we have is we have that he's a prophet, and he's a prophet of God, prophet of Yahweh. Maybe he's somewhere between 30 and 50 years old. We don't know. But we do know that he was proclaiming that Yahweh is God during a time when the nation was ruled by Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And Jezebel had killed almost all of the prophets of God during this time, and the worship of Baal was overtaking the people. That's what we know, and that's where we're going to move forward from. Okay, so in the, in the scripture we find Elijah, he arrives on the scene and by the word of the Lord he tells King Ahab that it will not rain again until Elijah says it's going to rain. And that causes a great famine in the land. After that we know that God sustained uh, Elijah by telling him to go to uh, a certain brook and abide by that brook for his needs for water, and then God sends ravens to him to feed him. After that, God sends him to a widow who only has a small amount of flour and oil left to feed one last meal to her and her son. And Elijah tells her, make it for me, a prophet of God. The woman does that, amazingly does that. And the flour and the oil doesn't run out. The woman's son dies a little bit after that, and Elijah raises him from the dead. And all this brings the woman to believe that Yahweh is God. So that's not a bad start for a prophet, right? I mean, the man is on fire. I mean, he's He's being fed by ravens. He's making the rain stop. He's he's healing people from the dead. He's causing provisions just to keep going and going miraculously. And God is showing his power through Elijah, through his very word. So people can see the mighty power of God in order to believe. Nothing is stopping this train called Elijah And it's time for a showdown. Showdown starts in chapter 18. And it's on the mountaintop of Carmel. A literal mountaintop, right? I think that that's kind of funny in my twisted brain. We're talking about mountaintops and here we are on a mountaintop, Mount Carmel. In chapter 18, Elijah sends word to the king Ahab and basically says enough is enough. It's time to settle things once and for all. Let's go ahead and I'm gonna ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're gonna start in verse 17, and I wanna read, read this with you, right? It is extremely important that we get it all uh, because a lot happens uh, in these chapters here from, from uh, chapter 18 on. So, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Verse 17 says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, the cause of disaster to Israel? He, he, meaning Elijah, said, I have not brought disaster to Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send orders and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20 So Ahab sent orders among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached the people and said, How long are you going to struggle with two choices? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people, did not answer him so much as a word. I'm just going to stop right there real quick. This is a huge challenge that Elijah is bringing before the prophets of Baal, bringing before the king, but ultimately bringing before the people. And what he's saying, choose. Choose. Don't stand here in the middle pretending like you don't know. Choose. If God is God, serve him. If Baal proves that he's God, serve him. But enough of this straddling both sides. As it says also in Scripture, choose for you this day whom you will serve. That's the gauntlet that... Elijah is throwing down to the people. And the people have no answer. Nothing. It's dead silence. And I find that not so, not so surprising, right? When you uh, consider, when you are given one of those choices or one of those situations, and they're huge, right? Big impact. And it has to do with, say, serving the Lord. If you're going to serve the Lord, do it. If you're not going to serve the Lord, then don't. But quit messing around. I mean, often we know, we already know in our hearts the sin that we're we're committing and abiding in. And we're quiet, right? Because if I say something, well, that means it's true. So I I find it telling that the people here, they act the same way that I would. It's like, I don't want to say it. I don't want to confess it, but I know it's true. So continuing on, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people I alone and left as a prophet of the Lord, while Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now have them give us two oxen and have them choose the one oxen for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And then all the people said, that's a good idea. That has nothing to do with me. I don't have to change anything, but it'll prove the point. Do that. Do that instead. Don't make me answer, right? But let's do this other miraculous thing. Let's see. That's a good idea. Verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose the one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, since there are many of you. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under the ox. Then they took the ox, which was given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped about the altar which they had made. And at noon, Elijah ridiculed them and said, call out a little louder. Since he is God, undoubtedly, he's attending to business. Or maybe he's on his way. Or maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep. And he'll awaken. So they cried out, With a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. I'm excited at this point. Are you excited? I mean, God's got this, right? Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come forward to me. And so all the people came forward to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Then Elijah took 12 stones corresponding to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. In other words, really deep, a really deep trench around the entire altar. And then he laid out the wood, and he cut the ox in pieces and placed it on the wood. And then he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it again. So they did it a second time. And then he said, one more time. And so they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Now here's the the important part, right? Verse 36, Then at the time of the offering of the eating sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell to their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And so they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Verse 41 Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of the roar of heavy shower. How cool is that? It's God and Elijah calling down fire, smiting the enemies of the Lord. But as I said in the intro, there's more to the mountaintop experience than first meets the eye. I think it's at this point, verse 41, that we kind of see the first glimpse of the humanity, of the weakness, of the crack in Elijah's armor. we see that in verse 22, that first crack. Verse 22 says, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left as a prophet of the Lord, while Baal's prophets are 450 men. That's an interesting statement for Elijah to make. So we already talked about how, yes, Jezebel the wife of King Ahab had killed almost all the prophets of God. That is true. But Elijah's statement isn't wholly accurate. And this is why it's important that you read in context. Right? We read part or we went over part of chapter 17. But there is a section right before where we started the story and that's in verse 13. In verse 13, what is going on during this section is Elijah is speaking to his servant Obadiah. And what he's actually doing is he's telling, giving Obadiah instructions. And those instructions are go to King Ahab and tell him enough is enough. We got we to settle this. Have the prophets of Baal come. And this is what it actually says. In verse 17, I mean, sorry, chapter 17, verse 13. And this is Elijah's servant, Obadiah, speaking. And it says, has it not been reported to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave, and provided them with bread and water? Was, Was Elijah the last prophet, the only prophet? No. first crack The second crack in Elijah's armor is seen in his Im- actions immediately following the proclamation to Ahab in verse 41 of chapter 18. That's where Elijah says there is a roar of heavy shadow of heavy shadow. Sorry, of heavy shower. Immediately after those words, This is what we see in verse 42. So continue with me. Chapter 18, verse 42. It says, So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he bent down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now. Look look towards the sea. And so he went up and looked, but he said, there is nothing. And yet Elijah said, go back. And he told them to do this seven times, to go look and see if there was anything. Elijah goes up After proclaiming that the heavy roar of a great and mighty shower is coming, he goes up to Mount Carmel and he waits. Why? I mean, the scriptures don't say that he was specifically going up there to pray. It says that he went and he put his face to the ground and put his face between his knees but doesn't say to inquire of the Lord, to pray the Lord, to seek the Lord. It just tells you that's what he's he's doing. And so he's just waiting. He's waiting for what? For me, I believe that he's waiting for God to continue the show. I mean, we just got done defying all common sense. His very word and prayer to the Lord caused fire to come down and consume water, wood, dust, stone. At His word, this happened. But God doesn't do it that same way. Elijah's word is the sound of a heavy storm is coming but there's no storm. So Elijah's waiting. I mean, imagine coming off the high of that showdown and the fire and God coming down and um, fire of God and, and that all coming down at your word and then you tell everybody to buckle up because a mighty roar of a great shower is here, but it's not. Seven times, it's not. And then you get a small cloud. And the seventh time, the servant comes back and he says, I see a small cloud the size of a fist coming. And that small cloud, that's enough to get Elijah up and moving again. And so he tells the king, or he tells them to tell the king to get moving. And when the rain comes, Elijah is once again so full of the power of God that he's able to race faster than the chariot all the way to the city. Again, miraculous. A miraculous mighty work of God. This is actually what it says in verse 44. And when the servant returned the seventh time, he said, behold, a cloud as small as a person's hand is coming up from the sea. And Elijah says, go up say to Ahab, harness your chariot horses and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Meanwhile, the sky became dark and the clouds and wind came up and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he belted his cloak around his waist and out ran Ahab to Jezreel. And so once again, we end the victorious mountaintop experience But we end it not girding up, preparing for the mighty shower to end the drought, but we end it with a bit of doubt and waiting, looking for clouds before moving. Why? I mean, was he second guessing the work of the Lord? I mean, he had just seen miracles, I mean just seen miracles happen. And no no small miracle. And on that, fire from heaven was on top of all the other miracles God had done to bring him to that point. Again, providing food where there was no food, stopping the rain by his very word, raising somebody from the dead, having provisions when there was none. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And one last thing he proclaims, he stops and waits instead of saying it and then doing the action that should follow, which would be girding up, getting ready, and going. Was he second-guessing God? Or was he doubting his own ability to hear God? Like, did I hear you right? I mean, I know I said those words, but I don't see no clouds. I'm not hearing the mighty wind or anything. Uh, I think I'll wait. Seems like a big disconnect there. I mean, after everything that he had just experienced. What's going on in his mind? God, is it me? Am I doing this right? I mean, I know that it was just you and me for all these other things, but I'm not hearing it. It's not happening. Am I really called? I mean, have you withdrawn something? What's, what's going on? In the end, I think it's, what happens is the same thing that happens, I know, to me, and um, I suspect it happens to many of you, and that's, it's the same old sin of pride that, that plagues us. And you may ask, what do you mean pride? I mean, where, where is Elijah being prideful? Well, he's being prideful in the fact that his eyes are on him. It's what's, what's going on here with me. It's that kind of pride. And you kind of see traces of that. Like I said, the first chink in the armor, so to speak, was when he proclaimed that he was the only prophet of God. I mean, I know I, in my life, you know, I've had instances like that. I'm not proud of them at all. But, you know, we're, we're serving the Lord, and, and it's like, you think that you're the only one who gets it, right? It's like, I'm, I, God, you've given me divine inspiration to know what this problem is, and and i'm the only one who knows what the solution what the solution is i that that happened to me early on in in uh my ministry as a worship leader right i look back at that time and i am embarrassed i mean just embarrassed yeah at that moment i i i knew how we were supposed to worship as a church i was right right It's everybody else who just doesn't get it, type of stuff. And God, I'm the only one. I feel like I'm the only one who understands. But that's not the case. It's never the case, (laughs) right? But that's a prideful thing. That is something that the Lord really had to work through with me. And it was hard it was really hard, but the rooting out of pride for, I think, all of you, you know, and because you've experienced it, it's one of the hardest sins to deal with, right? It hurts. It hurts, but it's necessary. So, eyes on himself. I'm the only prophet, and then just dwelling possibly on the fact of What have I done to cause this lack of response? I said the words, nothing happened, what's up? Type of thing. No matter what he's going through, the rain comes because the Lord is faithful. And we thank him for that. But we're going to see that this issue of pride, that it comes up again in Elijah as we go forward from this point. So the seeds of pride and doubt, they've now been planted, they've been watered, and they're beginning to grow. And they need to be dealt with. The next part of the story of Elijah takes place in chapter 19. And this is where Elijah has, uh, he's gone to Jezreel and stuff. And immediately what happens is that Ahab tells his wife Jezebel everything that's happened. If you look at chapter 19, starting at verse 1, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and the more so, if by the time of tomorrow I do not take your life and the life of one of them. And he was afraid. And he got up and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked for himself to die. And he said, Enough! Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he laid down, fell asleep under the broom tree. But behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a round loaf of bread baked on hot coals and a pitcher of water. So he ate, and he drank, and then he laid back down. But the angel of the Lord came back a second time, and he touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too long for you. So he arose, he ate, and he drank, and he journeyed in the strength of that food for forty days and 40 nights going to Horeb, the mountain of God. What we see in chapter 19 there at the beginning is that the blooms from those, uh, from uh, Elijah's first mountaintop decisions, they start to appear. In verse 3, you see fear. Jezebel has told him, I'm coming for you, and I'm coming to kill you. In verse 4, we see his despair. He takes off running. In verse 5 through 8, we get a look at the resulting depression that falls upon Elijah. I mean... Is this the same man <laughs> that that we have been reading about? I, it's just to me it it almost doesn't make sense. We we have to be talking about somebody else. Again, I know I keep saying it, but the very fire of the Lord fell at his word. I mean, and that it wasn't just just I say just that. It wasn't just that but he was there, he saw it, right? The power of God, in the presence of the power of God, multiplied on top of the fact that God was working through him and did it at his word. Same with all the other things that happened before. He lived it, it happened to him. It happened through him. It happened as part of his ministry and his walk. But the same things that happened to Elijah, they're the same things that happened to us. God can do miraculous things in our life, but how many times do you find yourself in a place of doubt or despair after that? And I think that the reasons are very similar. We get our eyes off of Jesus. We're not looking at him. We're not thinking about what he has just done anymore. All we're thinking about is our circumstance, the things that are happening to me right now, the things that could happen to me right now. Elijah is a man. I think we forget about that sometimes, right? I mean, and I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, obviously, there is something extremely special about the relationship between God and Elijah. I mean, he didn't die after all. At the end of his ministry, God took him up to heaven in a chariot. We believe that he's one of the witnesses at the end that we'll be talking about in the book of Revelation who comes back to be a witness here on earth. The guy is pretty special, right? but he's just a man, also. And he has the same doubts. And he goes through the same issues that we do that can lead to depression, despair, the same weaknesses. I am thankful to be able to read about that. Yeah, if we glorify everybody in the great mighty works that they do and forget their humanity, you know, the, you can set up an unrealistic expectation, right? but that's not what God wants you to do. Yes, he wants you to aspire to follow their example because in the stories that God gives us throughout the Bible, yes, people faced hardships, they faced persecutions, they faced all of this, but the, the story of it all is what God did in and through that and where he ultimately took them right? But if we have this weird conception that, that, well, he was the mighty prophet of God, nothing could touch him and he had no problems and all that, I could never aspire to be like that. No one can. The reason that the Lord gives us this history is so that we can look and we can learn from it. Not only can we learn from it, but we can relate to it, and we can see ourselves in and through this. The things that Elijah went through are things that we go through all the time. And the remedy for it is gonna be the same. And that's the Lord. So here we are, and we see all this. And in this particular part of the story, yes, Elijah is going through it. He's, he's asking the Lord to just, just end it. I'm done, I'm tired, I can't continue. And all of it's ridiculous, just like the things that we say to the Lord. But you know, God doesn't rebuke Elijah. I mean, instead, God meets Elijah right there in his need, right where he's at. And What the Lord does for Elijah is when he keeps him from harm, he provides a place for him to rest and tells him specifically to do just that. And he also meets his physical need for food and sleep through the the angel of the Lord. Some people believe that that as in other places in the Old Testament when the phrase the angel of the Lord is used, that they're actually talking about a theophany or, or a... A a, uh, presence of Jesus in the Old Testament and stuff. And that may be the case here. And if it is, my mind is blown, right? Because if that is the case, think about this Jesus, creator, came down to make bread for Elijah. And that is true for you. You know it because you've seen it. The God of all creation ministers to each and every one of us where we're at. And what he brings to us is just as miraculous as him coming down and baking bread for Elijah. It shows his love and his care for you. It never ends. It's always present. Dwell on these things. The one thing that I find and it's just a brief point of interest and you can chase this rabbit trail if you'd like but it's the phrase that that the angel of the Lord uses in verse 7. In verse 7 he says to Elijah when he's telling him to rise and eat the second time the journey is too great for you. What journey is he speaking of? I mean, this one just kind of leapt out at me personally, you know. Um, and I think the last time that I was able to share with you, we talked about, you know, stuff that had happened in the last year uh, in my own life, you know. And all of that, you know, can be put in context of a journey that the Lord has uh, for me. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that the journeys that the Lord has me on are too great for me. They're too great for me in my own spirit. That's the point. (laughs) It's all Him. It's Him sustaining us. It's Him lifting us up. It's His provision. It's His work, not ours. That's the journey. But chase that one. See what the Lord says to you, right? All right, we come to the next part, and the next part is 1 Kings 19 verses 9 through 18, and this is the second mountaintop experience. So it's a twofer, right? You got one on Mount Carmel, and now you're going to get one about Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is also called the mountain of the Lord. I find that very interesting as well in the context of the story, but you can chase that one on your own, okay? So we're gonna go through and we're gonna see what happens now. Here we are at the second mountaintop. I'm in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse nine, and it says, then he came there to a cave and spent the night there. So after he has been sustained by the food of the Lord, twice after he has rested, he is now empowered by the Lord. He is able to journey from that place under the tree to Mount Horeb, right? Okay, it, he went through that experience of going to Mount Horeb. That journey, it took him 40 days and 40 nights. That journey is not 40 days and 40 nights. That journey, I think, is they've measured it at best or at worst would be like nine days, He wandered for 40 days and 40 nights on a journey that should have taken him nine days. If that does not speak to you and me about how journeys with the Lord go because of us, (laughs) then I don't know what does. Right? God's very clear. He's like point A, point B. This should take you two days. Okay, two years later. Right? (laughs) We're still going through it. (laughs) God is patient. God is kind. He gave Elijah everything that he needed, not for a nine-day journey. He gave him what he needed for the 40 days and 40 nights. God is good. God understands. He understands our weaknesses. And he provided for it because, yes, all that was part of the journey as well. So it takes him that long. He finally gets to this cave at Mount Horeb. And like I said, verse 9 He came to a cave, cave. he spent the night there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, this is not what I wanna hear if I'm Elijah, right? I've just gone through this long journey and all that and the first thing that God says to him is, what are you doing here? Right, it's like, well, what do you mean what am I doing here? I mean, we just spent 40 days and 40 nights journeying here. It's a weird question, but it's a question that has to be asked. God knows exactly why he's there, but he wants Elijah to say it, right? So Elijah answers in verse 10, and he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, for the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I, oh, I, and I alone am left. And they have sought to take my life. Still living in that delusion, forty days later, forty days of being miraculously miraculously sustained. And then a hundred things that God did before, but his eyes are still on him and he's still under that delusion that he's the only one who gets it, right? Verse 11, so he said, God, so God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and powerful wind was tearing out the mountains and breaking the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very zealous of the Lord, the God of armies, for the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they have sought to take my life. Do you guys get that? He said the same thing. I mean, repeated his words verbatim. (laughs) Right? Hmm. That's uh, bold. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you've arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Amron. You shall also, also anoint uh, Jehu, the son of uh, Nim, Nimshi, king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Saphat of Abel-Meholan, uh, as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Jezre, sorry, of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. How many? 7,000, but I thought it was Elijah, just Elijah, right? No, 7,000. Look, I I cannot comprehend (laughs) how loving and kind God Almighty is. Here's a prophet of God who has experienced the awesome power of God over and over and over again, and yet he is full of fear, he is full of doubt, He is full of despair and all of that is couched in self and couched in pride but god does not rebuke elijah as he comes to the mountain of god (laughs) instead he asks him what are you doing here and elijah in his audacity and boldness doesn't bat an eye i would love to say not me lord I would never answer that way. I would be as Job putting my hand in front of my mouth to not say a word. Right, sure I would. I would be just like Elijah. Oh, woe is me. All this stuff is happening to me. I'm the only one who gets it. I'm the only one who's suffering. I'm going to die. That's where you have me, God. that would be me too, I get it. And Elijah says that not only once, he says it twice, and that would probably be me too. It says exactly the same thing, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies for the sons of Israel who have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they have sought to take my life. In other words, it's just like he's saying, God, I've given my all to you, but nothing has changed. It's just me against the world, and they want me dead. But does it matter what we've done? Or what we bring to the game? No. It is all the Lord. And this is why I keep coming back to this sin of self and and of pride and that's because that's eyes on you, not eyes on God. It is all about what the Lord has done. It is the Lord who brought fire down. It is the Lord who stopped the rain. It is the Lord who provided for him in the wilderness. It is the Lord who raised the sun from the dead. It is the Lord who sustained him again in the wilderness a second time. It is always the Lord. And it is not about me. I am a vessel, hopefully an empty vessel. And if we're not empty, we pray, God empty me out so that we can be used as an empty vessel. But it's a vessel for his glory. That's my function, that's my role to serve Him in that capacity. My function and role is not to be great. It is not to be the great, mighty prophet of the Lord. It is simply to be a prophet of the Lord, one who tells the Word of God as the Word of God, not the Word of me. It's not about what I want. It's about what the Lord is accomplishing and will accomplish to glorify Himself. We serve the Lord our God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who formed us with his own hands, the one whose breath breathed life into us. He created the entire universe and beyond. There is no one like him. It is not about us. Is it about, it is all about him. Praising him, giving thanks to him, glorifying him, asking that the things that are done in and through my life wouldn't bring me glory, but they would bring him glory. That was true for Elijah, that is true for us. We're in good company. So in the story after Elijah gives that excuse to the Lord, That's when God brings this life-changing message and lesson to Elijah and that's what we see in verse 11 when he says, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold the Lord, for behold the Lord was passing by and a great and powerful wind was tearing out the mountains and breaking the rocks in pieces before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. Verse 13 says, when Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. When Elijah heard the gentle voice, did he go out when there was the mighty storm and wind? No. Did he go out in the earthquake? No. Did he go out in the fire? No. When did he hear the Lord? He heard the Lord through the gentle voice. That's when he responded. I think that part of what God is trying to show Elijah is that yes, I am that God of power, and yes, I do demonstrate that power and make myself known in that so that others will believe I am who I say I am. But Elijah's complaining in his excuse, basically saying the people aren't changing. They haven't changed. We did all that, nothing happened. They're the same. They still turn their backs on you. And I think through what God is showing you here is that yes, I am in those things that we did. But when did you hear me? You heard me through my word. The very function of a prophet. To speak the word of the Lord. That is when Elijah heard, and I think God is saying that is when my people will hear and change, is when they hear my word. A reminder to us, signs and wonders, great. I love to see them, and God does do those things and he has very specific reasons for doing those things, but what are we called to do? We're called to take the message of the gospel, his word, to people who are lost and dying. It is that by the Spirit of God that changes the hearts of men. That was true in the Old Testament, it's true now. It is God's word that transforms. And just like that is the call of the prophet, is our call. And so we should do it. So God asks Elijah again. He says, Elijah, after that lesson, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And like I said, I love Elijah's response because it shows me that I'm not a numbskull all by myself, right? He didn't get God's point right then. But instead, he gave the same exact reply to God as before, saying like, yeah, I get you, God, but you don't get what it's like to be me serving you. But still, God doesn't rebuke him. Instead, in verse 15 through 18, God moves forward with Elijah. In those verses, God gives Elijah instruction for moving off the mountain and for moving forward. If you read beyond that, once Elijah gets off the mountain and he starts doing what the Lord says in fact one of the first things that he does is he goes and he finds Elisha who is going to be his replacement he's going to be the prophet of God once Elijah is gone so he calls Elisha to follow him you do see that but I think one of the things that you start to pick up on when you read that and then you move forward from there is that this Elijah is not the same Elijah as we started with when he burst onto the scene in, in chapter 17, the man full of fire, right? So while he may not have gotten the lesson, or we don't at least don't get an indication that he got the lesson that God was trying to teach him right at that moment, I think that you do see that he did understand. It becomes much more quiet and does what the Lord tells him to do. He's about the Lord's business after that. I think what you find is that God has changed him forever. When we talked about the journey that the angel said was too great for him. This is why I brought that up, right? The journey generally is never about the immediate thing when it's with the Lord. It's about all the other things that He wants to accomplish in your life beyond that, to a moment of change, a moment of growth, a moment of understanding where you become more usable than you've ever been, and that's what He wants. So what does this all say? What does this all say to us? You know, each of us, obviously, we face our own mountaintop decisions, And often things start off great with God. You feel his love, his power. You feel his calling. But then what? I mean, what is the next step? What do you do when? What do you do when your eyes move off of God? What do you do when pride causes you to focus on you instead of him? What do you do when despair and depression creep in? And I would suggest to you that you do the same as what you've just seen because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You see, you've just experienced and read and seen the whole process moving through Elijah. And just like God gave Elijah everything that he needed all the way through his journey to Mount Horeb in chapter 19, he gives you everything you need. For example the example of Elijah. The very thing that we've been reading and looking at this morning as well as the other examples that you know in his word. Thank God that you go to a fellowship that goes through the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because you hear all of these things in the context that they're supposed to be in. You study them. We pick them apart. We figure out what the Lord is trying to say, both to us as a church and then to us individually. Those stories, the history is there, placed there by God so that you can see example after example after example of how he works with people and how he will work in you, what was necessary, what was needed, how it was applied. And you can grab hold of that. You look for these for help and instruction and encouragement. And like I said, this is why we study the Word of God. Specifically, I would say you can look towards several of Paul's the apostle Paul's admonitions. The first being in First Corinthians. If you want to turn there, First Corinthians, chapter nine, verses twenty-three through twenty-seven, it says, "I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow-partaker of it." Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? run in such a way that you may win for everyone who completes the games exercises self-control in all things so they do it to obtain a perishable wreath but we an imperishable therefore i run in such a way as to not run aimlessly i box in such a way as to avoid hitting air but i strictly discipline my body to make it a slave so that after i preach to others I myself will not be disqualified. And then Paul also says in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verses one through three, he says, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with the endurance, the race that is set before us Looking only at Jesus, the originator and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That passage in Hebrews follows the passage that we call the Hall of Faith. If you, When you have time and you're studying after uh, today or after you've heard this message, go back in Hebrews and read about it. And it's what we just said. It recounts the stories and the histories and the people and how they did this and God was there and they were faithful and they did this and God was there and they were faithful and they did this. These are the things that you should surround yourself, that it's talking about in Hebrews, surrounding yourself with a cloud of witnesses, right? These people have been through it. They they went through it, this is what happened, and God has given you their story so that you can see it and be encouraged and be filled with the knowledge and the conviction that God is at work in your life and he will pull you through to the day of completion. Paul goes on and he says in Romans 12, verse one, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to the Lord, and this is your spiritual service of worship, giving it all to the Lord. Often that includes letting go of all the stuff, right? All the things that are happening to me, all the persecutions, all the troubles, all the trials, all the things that I am troubled with and recognizing I'm in good company because God has seen literally thousands if not millions of people through the same exact thing and he was faithful. And so all my faith, hope and trust is in him and he will see me through. God's word tells you that, believe it. That's what it's there for, is to help see you through. There was, um, I I just want to share this with you really quickly. I know we're going over budget, but um, there was a movie several years ago that kind of helps put things in perspective to me, and that was the movie Facing the Giants. Do you guys remember the movie Facing the Giants? Okay, great. So just really quickly, there is this scene in this movie um, where the coach of the football team is trying to, to get his team to, to understand some very fundamental tru- truths about their abilities, what they can or can't do. They doubt themselves totally and whatnot. He gets one guy, one of the big strong guys in particular, and he says, hey, what do you, how far do you think you can like crab walk you know, down, the, down the field? You know, do you think you can make it, you know, 30, 30 yards? How about 50? And the guy's like, oh, I don't know about 50. I don't, I don't think that's possible. And so the coach says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to get down here in the end zone, get in that stance, and not only am I going to have you crawl, I'm going to put somebody on top of your back, right? And I just want you to, I just want you to crawl, right? Oh, wait, one other thing. I'm going to blindfold you, okay? So he blindfolds this kid, and he has him do this excruciating crab walk, it hurts when I watch the movie because I can just feel it in my, in my calves and in, in my thighs and my arms and it's just like, oh my gosh, this guy's a, a, a machine just because he went 10 yards. You know, but he's going and he's working it and stuff and you can tell, yeah, t- 10 yards in, 20 yards in, everything's fine, you get to 30 yards and it's kind of like, oh no, this is not gonna work. The weight that's pushing down on him is just too great and he's ready to give up, right? But he's blindfolded, right? So what he says is he keeps asking the coach, he's like, how much farther do I have to go? And the coach says, don't worry about it. Just keep going. Just listen to my voice. Just keep going. He's like, yeah, but it's really hard and I, I mean, my arms are going to give out. And the, and the coach just keeps saying, don't worry about it. Just keep coming towards me. And he says, oh, I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. And he's like, you can do it. Just move one arm in front of the other. Just keep going. And the kid keeps asking, how much farther do I have to go? And he's like, you're almost there. You're almost there. Just keep following my voice. Long story short, we get done. The kid just collapses. He can't go any any further. And he's like, did I make it? Did I make it? And the coach says, take your blindfold off. You're in the other end zone. Not at the 50-yard line that you didn't think you could make. But you listened to my voice. Your eyes were not on you. Your eyes were not on the circumstance. And this is what you did. And that's what God says to us. Through my spirit, if you're not looking at all this stuff, and you're listening to my voice, And my encouragement, if you're abiding in the provision that I've given you, you're going to make it to the goal. But give it your all. Don't hold back. That's his word to us. That's why he's given us all these examples. So that we can run the race and not hold anything back so that our eyes would be firmly fixed on Jesus and we would run it to win. Use what the Lord's given you. He's given you his whole word. Study it. Know it. And then you'll know him and you'll be able to move. Keep running the race to win. That is my word to you this morning. Life happens. Despair, doubt. it all happens. Pride, it all happens. I can take a three-day journey and turn it into, you know, a two-year journey with the Lord, just like that. It happens. But He's given you the tools. Use the tools. Listen for his voice, his word. And then spread that word to others because they need it just like you do. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, thank you for the lives of the people in your word that you've given us so that we can see examples of lives lived for you. They're not perfect, but because you are in every life, they are astounding, and we can grab hold of that, and we can see what you've done, and because of who you are, then God, and we know of your faithfulness because we see the evidence of it in their lives, and we can clearly see the evidence of it in our own lives, that our faith would increase so that we move forward not doubting, not doubting you, but moving forward knowing that it is you who is going to be glorified. God, we thank you. Keep teaching us, Lord. Let us hunger and thirst for your word. Let us hunger and thirst to be transformed by it. And God, let us understand that as we do this and as we surrender ourselves to you and the life that you've called us to, that we will be set free, wholly and completely from every shackle, everything that would seek to hold us back from serving you in the fullness of the Spirit of God and that you will be glorified because of it. That is our desire. And let that continue to be our desire as we stand before you, O oh Lord, that you would be lifted up and that you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in that, let's stand and let's rejoice, for the Lord has set us free. Amen. It is all him. Live that life that way. God bless you.